Hey, this is Mike Masha at Cadwallader. Thanks for listening. This is our fourth industry conversation podcast since the disruption has started. I've enjoyed doing them and we're trying to make them better each time. Somehow our technical team still can't make my voice sound deep and smooth like Morgan Freeman, but hopefully they'll get that worked out uh, here soon. Today, I'm with Jeff Johnson, who runs Wells Fargo's subscription business uh, and is also the chairman of the FFA, uh, not to mention my good friend. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Yeah, Mike. Thanks for having me. Glad to uh, back clean up here in your your podcast. Yeah. Well, uh, I definitely want to talk some business with you, but some personal things to start. You and I are both supposed to be in San Francisco for Brad Boland's wedding this weekend, but I guess that's not happening. It is, it is not happening. You see some of the stories, but but kind of undercovered is just all of the personal impact away from the you know medical tragedies you know that are going on across the world. I mean, I've got multiple people on my team that were supposed to get married in second quarter of this year that have been been scrambling to you know reorganize, replan, or or you know have to to figure out what it's going to look like. But yeah, one of our one of our best friends that we would have been out celebrating this week is obviously a going to be a massively different uh, experience now. Yeah. Do you think his uh, fiance Lee will get smart and use the postponement to uh, call it off? It's, so Brad's a smart guy, and he was pretty early on in uh, you know recognizing what was going to happen with with COVID and impact to the economy. And I, I have to say, I was giving him a little bit of noise around uh, you know using that as an excuse to get out of the wedding. But <laughs> certainly seems like they're going forward with it and uh, and have a revised plan. But you know he was at least a lucky one and, and got ahead a little bit, was able to make some changes. Yeah. So speaking on the the personal side, you know, your your family had a really tough situation uh, when your father-in-law passed, like right as the shelter-in-place order uh, came online. What, what what can you share with us about that? Yeah. So it was it was March 13th is when we got the phone call. It was it was meant to be my last day in the office. We already moved the team to mostly a work from home situation at that point in time. But there was a handful of us that were were still holding down the fort. I, I was one of those. Um, you know, when we got the the tragic news, you know, again, I think this just goes into you know, one of the massive changes to life and how the freedom of movement and gatherings and, you know, being able to, um, you know, be with loved ones and to grieve in a normal process was massively changed um, because of, you know, what's going on in the current situation. And it, it was a little bit, you know, trickier for us logistically and that my father-in-law lived in Connecticut, um, but my my wife and her family, you know, including her father, all born in Florida, the, the family's from down there. So we wanted to, to have him, um, you know, buried in Florida, but you know, he was pretty, pretty involved in his community and the, the concept of trying to have, you know, something from a, a funeral at his a church in Connecticut was, you know, deeply important to us. So we had to you know, had to find a way to be in two different states, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, right in the heart of this. And, you know, again, it was vastly different than what you would expect when a church service that would have had hundreds and hundreds of people in attendance, you know, had 15, um, you know, a couple of us family members and, you know, a few people from the church. So just, you know, a stark contrast into, you know, what an event would have been, you know, should have been. And and, and the same with the burial in Florida when the, the rules in place at that point in time were, you know, you couldn't have a gathering of, of more than 10 people. So, you know, I mean, look, there's there's a lot of people that have it worse than us. We're at least able to do something where, you know, you certainly see reports and stories and, you know, Italy and New York and others that, you know, aren't able to do anything to, to properly, you know, bury their, their loved ones and family members. So I'm at least thankful that we were able to do something. But um, you know, it's, it's it's kind of tragic and, and unfortunate, um, you know, in mid-March was clearly in the peak of the, you know, activity um, and sort of craziness that we were dealing with in the financial markets and tough time personally to, to you know, try to spend 110% of my time with my family who, you know, who certainly needed us then and, you know, 110% of my time to, you know, my work and business and team that um, had a ton of activity going on in a disruptive market. So never an ideal time to have a, a loved one yeah. pass away. But, I, you know, I can certainly convey that this past March was uh, definitely not one of the optimal timings. 
Yeah, it's 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 just super challenging right now. My mom had uh, surgery this week, and it's just so awkward not to be able to go to the hospital. You know, my father couldn't be there to see her after the surgery. My brother and I couldn't be there. Fortunately, my mom is tough as nails and probably was happy I wasn't there anyway. And she's doing great, by the way. But, you know, it is just awkward to, to have these things happen and not, not to be able to be there. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine something like that happening and you not dropping what you would do, um, you know, and getting up to Winston-Salem and seeing the family and, you know, and being with your parents at that point in time? And it's it's kind of, you know, whatever situation could have, you know, you could fathom going on, it would be something to where something like that, you know, immediately takes over and do it. And, you know, we've we've created and found ourselves in a situation that prevents that type of activity to go on. So, you know, you certainly hear everyone talk about this is unprecedented, but it's pretty easy when something where you're not even directly impacted by the virus um, of having that, you know, be such a, a change and challenge on a, on a personal story. Well, let me let me transition with you a little bit, if you don't mind, to talk about your business and how uh, what's going on with the Wells subscription portfolio and, and how how is your business holding up? Yeah, so I, I think the, I mean, this has been, you know, certainly an interesting time period in the subscription market and, and for our portfolio. And I, I think we've had enough time now into the crisis to, you know, at least feel reasonably well positioned on, on what's going on. Clearly, some of the headline reports early on in the media were probably creating a little bit more fear and anxiety than what we've witnessed and experienced. But I mean, we've never had a month as busy as March of 2020. And, you know, you had a, a confluence of factors into that of, you know, I think it was already going to be a pretty busy quarter and, you know, month ends, you know, are always busy time periods. So, you know, March was shaping up to have a lot of new deal volume. And and then really, as as the market started to digest, you know, what was going to be happening, the, the kind of rush to liquidity and everyone trying to make sure that they had facilities in place for the coming storm, you know, by far was the, the primary focus. So um, we've just never seen levels of requests for upsizes for getting new deals closed on accelerated timelines for you know, deals in the pipeline shaping up to be second quarter closes getting pulled forward with, you know, maybe a, a smaller investor close than, you know, what otherwise would have been the situation. So just a ton of activity going on. You know, I, I literally think our portfolio, um, you know, had increased balances every day in the month of March. So there was just consistent, you know, increased utilization. And, and, I, and I really look at it and, and think that people are going to look back at, at this month and this period and realize the, the value that having a subscription facility in place provides for, for a fund. And, you know, the, the drawdown activity that we had across the portfolio for a variety of different reasons, whether or not it was, you know, meeting margin calls or, um, you know, doing something to be protective for portfolio companies. Companies or you know, for the, the credit funds being the means to fund the unprecedented level of revolver draws that they were having on their underlying portfolios. The, you know, these facilities in this market provided much needed liquidity and capital to, to funds at a time period that would have put a massive amount of you know, undue stress on the LP community. You know, all of that funding requirement would have been shifted to the LP. So uh, you know, when we look at it from a, a volume perspective, and we're still, you know, parsing through some of the data, but, you know, the the amount of draws that we had, I think, is going to be a record month for us uh, in our portfolio. So clearly, you know, more use than, than ever in the subscription product um, and, and just more, you know, requests for capital event than what we would normally get. So, you know, extremely, extremely busy period of time. And, you know, I know we're not the only one. Some, you know, continued conversations in the market, it, it's pretty consistent that, um, you know, everyone across the street has been extremely busy. And, you know, oh, by the way, it's not not just, you know, our portfolios. There's been, you know, tons going on across the, the corporate and investment banks and activity, um, you know, throughout virtually every, you know, every sector and every industry. And, you know, again, one of the 
uniqueness um, to this, you know, period of distress is how broad reaching it's, you know, clearly a global phenomenon. And, you know, there's not a lot of industries or sectors or loan portfolios that are not being impacted in one way or another. So what we experience in our team is pretty consistent, you know, with about every type of lending portfolio at just about every bank across the globe from, from what I've heard. Alice Murray uh, from the Drawdown wrote an article this week that talked about, and it was titled LP Defaults or Fake News, which I thought was kind of funny, but talked about the FFA statement on investor funding performance to date. What are you guys seeing in your portfolio? Are the investors still funding pretty uh, consistently with how they have in the past? Yeah, I mean, at this point, we've had completed capital calls, you know, in the order of magnitude of tens of billions of dollars um, at this point, kind of post, you know, market stresses. So I think we we feel pretty decent that we have a large sample size, um, you know, large enough sample size across a ton of different funds and a ton of different sectors and still have yet to see any institutional default you know, I will say there there were a couple of scares when when the work from home started getting implemented globally. There were, you know, proactive LPs having you know communication with GPs that you know there might be some delay or delinquency or they were going to have trouble being able to, you know, just logistically get into the system to be able to issue and to to fund on a capital call and. You know, it was certainly hard not to to be a little concerned, and so whether or not there was something you know more behind that, uh, again, just knowing the the amount of um, you know margin calls and liquidations and just you know, general stress in the market at that point in time, but really all of that has ended up coming through. And um, you know, we certainly have seen some small high net worth defaults, which make a ton of sense, you know, at this point in time. And, and honestly, in 2019 and 2018 and other periods where there haven't been stress, there's always, you know, a tiny proportion of high net worths that, you know, end up not being able to meet capital calls for one reason or another. So and nothing that I would say is surprising and certainly nothing to, to any magnitude. And more recently, I think there's some anecdotal good signs around new investor commitments into funds that have, have been coming in kind of, you know, continuing to show that there's ongoing support for you know, private capital, private capital markets and, and these type of portfolios. So I think there were a couple of weeks there at the end of March where we were definitely on heightened alarm. And, you know, the team always does a, a really good job of paying attention to and tracking capital call and investor performance. But, you know, we certainly had more eyes focused on that and, you know, more real-time tracking going on than probably ever have in a, our team's history. But, you know, so far, so good on that front. So, certainly do do think the one or two reports that then kept on getting recirculated are grossly exaggerating the reality. So the, you know, I think it is appropriate to, to call that fake news. And it, it, some of the survey data that comes out of asking if, if people are, you know, concerned or have some level of concern around liquidity or, or valuation, I think it's completely reasonable to answer yes with that. Like who doesn't have some sort of concern, you know, around finances at this point of time with the level of Absolutely. uncertainty that's that's out there. So, you know, trying to spin a number that 40% of, you know, people might express some sort of concern or something along those into saying that that's going to lead to massive default is a huge leap in my mind. And, um, you know, a very generic qualitative question versus, you know, what we've seen as a lot of capital, um, you know, that has been funded on time and, you know, normally. So, um, you know, the one other thing around that point is, is, the volume and quantum of capital calls that, that were happening. And, um, you know, at least from our data, you know, there's, it, it's, it's, I would say up a little bit. Um, you can certainly see that there is more, but that naturally is following the increased activity from draws on the facilities that took place in, in March. And, you know, when we, when we look at historical data quarter ends, you know, around the capital calls coming in right before quarter end or coming in, right after quarter end are always the highest periods on on record and uh, I, I do think this past 2019 year end was a little bit of an anomaly but the the quantum of capital call activity that we saw around the q4 
you know, year-end activity just three, four months ago was vastly, massively larger on a magnitude scale than, than what we've had this late March kind of early April timeframe. So, you know, obviously markets are different, but LPs just recently went through a period of capital call funding and, and dollars that had to exceed what they're getting right now. So I, I, I don't I don't think we've hit any level that should be, you know, to that stretch point that LPs aren't able to make. And it, it makes sense that that everyone has been funding. It's interesting, you know, the uh, investors are all reporting that capital call volume is up while your data shows that it's less now than it was at the end of the year. I've been trying to get my arms around that disconnect and think about why it is. I mean, one of the things that potentially is a reason is that you guys tend to bank the upper quartile of sponsors and investors might be invested over the course of the entirety. And so maybe in the lower middle market and the middle market, capital calling is more frequently, uh, is happening more frequently. What, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I definitely think there, you know, there are going to be some differences and, and maybe one caveat to my point was focusing on the, the dollar volume. The number of capital calls actually is pretty consistent you know, just recently with what the uh, year-end period in, in 19 that I just reflected, even though the dollar amount was a lot higher back then. Um, so I do think when we look at March, early April, number of capital calls that have gone out versus the same time period in 2019, it's higher. The dollar volume, not materially different. So I do think it's just a little bit more widespread. And And again, I think it makes a ton of sense. If there was a you know, a manager that needed to meet a margin call on March, you know, 23rd and unexpectedly, you know, that was not a planned drawdown on their subscription facility that they would have forecasted to investors. But now all of a sudden they became fully drawn or near fully drawn. They probably pretty quickly issued a capital call to be able to get proceeds to repay on the facility and, you know, maintain that liquidity source, um, you know, coming up again. So I, I think there are definitely examples of unplanned draw activity that happened in March for you know all the reasons we talked about that you know would very naturally lead to a capital call thereafter. You know, again, you kind of look back into the well, what if we didn't have a subscription facility? I think that would have created more challenges for the funds and potentially created a little bit more stress on a, on an LP side. But I, I do think in the overall you know, the, the magnitude of that has still been muted, but it, it certainly does seem that the, the breadth of the capital activity is probably uptick from what a normal case would be. And, and maybe that's what uh, some of the reflection of measuring by the number of capital calls, it would be accurate to say that um, an LP you know, could have received something a little bit higher this time than normal. The scope of the disruption here is just so much greater than what we've seen in the past, especially in relation to the speed in which it's happened. I keep wondering and trying to forecast kind of what innovations are going to come out of this and what's going to change in our market. You know, are we going to see startups formed, things like that? You got any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I probably haven't had enough time to put my innovation hat on the last couple of weeks as as I would have liked. You know, I, I do think there are certainly some types of financings, you know, that have been prevalent that people are realizing are probably not, you know, the most appropriate. And, you know, I think there's, you know, some within our space, uh, some un uncommitted facilities, um, you know, are going to be something that there's probably a little bit, you know, less desire for on a go for basis. I think on some of the asset-based financings, you know, mark-to-market, um, you know, based vehicles, I think people are going to realize that, um, you know, maybe, you know, some junior pieces of paper, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, best uh, levered on a mark-to-mark on -mark basis and, you know, forced margin calls, um, you know, are not the the greatest thing to have. So I think there are some lessons learned that are probably going to shift the paradigm of financing tools, you know, that our clients are using. Um, on the, the innovation and in startup, I mean, disruption, I think, historically leads to, you know, more splinters and more opportunity for, for new entrants to come in to do things differently, and particularly from, you know, the asset management side of the, you know, the spectrum. But 
uh, you know, and that's certainly really really challenging to implement right now. And, you know, how is the new fund going to go out and to raise capital when they can't meet with LPs and when LPs can't you know, do a proper due diligence? So uh, I'm sure ultimately, you know, from this disruption, there'll be, you know, plenty of new funds that end up getting formed. But at least for the, you know, the time being in the asset management space, I think the, um, you know, the richer are going to get richer. And, if you have a, a big diversified business model and you have a large IR team that is able to you know, solely focus on going out and raising new capital when you know, the PMs and investors are able to, to focus on the portfolio companies and investments that they have, you know, that's a model that allows you to, you know, to go out and to create a new fund to capitalize on something. If you're a smaller start, startup or, you know, more singular in investment focus, it, you, know, you probably don't have the resources to, you know, to fully get diverted to, you know, allow some of that to happen since, you know, at least most of the clients that we talk to are still a little bit in the, the firefighting mode and, and trying to figure out what they have on, on an existing portfolio standpoint. But, you know, yeah. I think disruption always creates opportunity. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, I've tried to to talk to my team about to, you know, to be thoughtful in our space and to be thoughtful for their careers that, um, you know, you end up learning a lot more in these situations and, you know, more opportunities present themselves. And I think that, you know, extends from a, a personal level to a professional level to, you know, business opportunities. So probably need I, to, I just, uh, to spend a little bit more time and maybe we need to have another brainstorming chat. About yeah, I just, what, what are you thinking? I, what are you seeing? Well, I can't imagine that they're not going to be new NAV lending funds formed. I just feel like there's a tremendous volume of demand for the product in the market that's kind of crept up on us here over six weeks. And when you look at the availability of capital to lend into it, it it's there, but it's small. And I, I think some of these bigger managers that don't need uh, – you know, that that have existing debt platforms are likely to be successful raising a fund that's focused on NAV-based lending. The other, the other thing that I think will happen is I do think a lot of funds are feeling the structural limitations of the optionality in their partnership agreements, i.e., you know, they had real tight limits on what they can use debt for, what kind of debt they can borrow, how quick they had to pay it down. And a little bit more flexibility right now would be helpful. And so I do think when new funds are being formed, there's going to be a fair amount of learning here. You know, it would be nice for some older funds right now that are past their investment period to still be able to take on a layer of, for example, preferred equity so they could support their portfolio companies without having current pay interest, as an example. And many LPAs, of course, you know, six years ago, we weren't really even talking about preferred equity in a closed-end fund. But now that that option exists, and if an LPA didn't contemplate it, you know, it's hard to do it now because you you know, you've just got to go back and get investor approval. So I, I think we'll see some innovations to create flexibility down the road for fund financing. Yeah, I think that makes a bunch of sense. I mean, certainly the the secondary market players are probably the, you know, best uh, equipped to fill a little bit of that void uh, where they, you know, have the infrastructure and expertise to to have some evaluation on, on underlying you know, portfolio companies and, and fund assets. And, you know, have already been forced in a good market to, you know, to be creative and in, in thinking about structural ways that they can provide liquidity into that space. And the reason for liquidity and form is maybe, you know, changing a good bit now, but I would anticipate a, a good uptick. I mean, you've had a ton of capital raised uh, by a lot of those those players. And, you know, at least for the time being, we're not seeing a whole lot of LP transfers. And I think the, you know, the bid ask on that is going to, you know, probably prevent, um, a lot of activity in the in the next quarter or two in that space before that'll we'll start to to naturally pick up a little bit more. And in the meantime, um, you know, I think they're they're probably the ones best equipped. I certainly don't think it's the the bank market and the the, the bank market and the fund finance space had increasingly been talking about NAV and looking at and and doing you know doing different financings. But I have to imagine just given the you know overall credit 
environment that, um, you know, banks that I've been dipping their toe in or, you know, banks that already have a portfolio are probably going to be more focused on, you know, or in retrenchment mode versus, you know, putting on new capital. So I think your intuition is right. That's going to have to come from third-party asset manager. Yeah. So one thing I'm scratching my head about is why I'm not hearing anything about investor rating downgrades. You know, we structured so much of the market with a borrowing base that tiered advance rates and concentration limits based on investor ratings. And I just can't imagine that many of these municipalities whose ratings we relied on shouldn't be downgraded. Now, I appreciate many of them haven't, but their credit has to have deteriorated at some level. I mean, when when are we going to start hearing about ratings downgrades and corresponding impacts on borrowing basis? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good question. The the only thing that we've seen come through is, is pretty benign and, and largely in the corporate space. Um, you know, the the Boeing's, the you know maybe some of the airlines, uh, Ford, you know was was downgraded a notch. So you know we have some some small commitments, um, you know, from the corporate balance sheet or or corporate pension funds where that ends up getting impacted. But but really nothing to meaningfully impact borrowing bases at this point. And you know your observations right there you know we hear and see and it makes a lot of intuitive sense that there's going to be stress at the you know the local and, and state levels um, and they don't have the um, you know the luxury of a uh, that our, our U.S. Uh, federal government does of, of just running a deficit so you have to think that some of that stress is going to come through it just it just hasn't effectuated yet from a um you know, from a rating standpoint so at least at this point the the sovereign um and the you know and the state and local has been pretty benign yeah i mean i think we wondered a little bit are we you know and, and had the the comment are we overstructuring around some of that you know analysis and you know one can probably make an argument that well right now there's certainly stress and the ratings aren't necessarily picking that up so we seem to be able yeah. to blame the rating agencies you know 12 years ago for the in the last recession and you know maybe maybe a little bit more that comes out now but I still don't anticipate that be too impactful in the near term on the on our portfolio. So speaking of running a deficit, you know, at the FFA conference in Miami, you arranged to have Stephanie Kelton speak on modern monetary theory. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of funny now in hindsight, it's almost like you knew that this was going to happen. Look, in my view, the Fed and the Treasury are doing a good job, kind of doing all they can, but nobody is talking about how we're going to pay all this stimulus back. What do you think? I mean, is, is Stephanie got it right? Well, I, I, I do remember, I think it was some point last summer, you know, me pitching to the board to have Stephanie Kelton as one of the, the speakers in Miami and asking for a little bit of, you know, trust me, she's going to become more relevant and what she's talking about is going to become, you know, more of in the, um, you know, the, the popular rhetoric. I, I, I can't say that this is how I predicted it would happen. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish I uh, was that good at forecasting the future. But it seemed inevitable to me that you know ultimately the you know the level of of debt uh, globally you know that was going on and the, you know some of the other you know political winds that were blowing um, you know the concept of modern monetary theory and you know ultimately monetizing debt was going to you know continue to to grow in popularity um, you know I. I I, I can't speak for her, but I'm not sure she would necessarily say what's going on now is, you know, exactly the way, um, you know, she would classify the right use of, of MMT. But certainly it's a it's a tool in the toolkit. And, you know, I agree with you that the Fed is, you know, really doing the, the best that they can and, um, you know, trying to find ways to support the financial system and support the economy and, you know, have, have been very active and, you know, very very quick and extremely, you know, large dollar amounts that are being talked about. And one thing that really hasn't driven the discussion is the the how are we going to pay for it? So, um, you know, I think people are certainly thinking about that as a, a secondary effect right now. And, you know, I mean, I guess the, the one quick comment that I would have around, you know, maybe uh, helping to, to massage a little bit of the, the concern is, you know, the concept of, you know, increased money in the system. 
and in view that that you know directly leads to to inflation it's 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 pretty hard today to to think about when we've got you know unemployment that's going to hit you know or exceed 15 percent and 22 million people that have filed for unemployment that um you know additional stimulus checks that are going out to either businesses or individuals is you know all of a sudden going to drive banana prices you know and milk prices to double so um, I think right now people are, you know, and the, the economy is more focused on having, a, you know, enough flow to be able to sustain prices and fight off deflation, not not the inflation side. And, you know, we'll, we'll see in the, the what comes of it. And, you know, there's been plenty of pieces around the U.S. dollar on a global basis and, you know, maybe some moves away from that. But at least for the time being, the, the dollar is still the, you know, the flight to um, flight to safety. And, you know, it's not seemingly had too much of an issue since, again, this is a global issue, not just a, a U.S. specific issue. And, you know, plenty of other central banks are, are acting, maybe not the same magnitude because of the, the scale of the, you know, their economies that they're dealing with. But, um, you know, it kind of does help a little bit when everyone's doing it. You know, it's it's interesting, and I wish I had more time to think about it. Like, if you if you think about the number of people filing unemployment this week, announced in this morning's jobs report, you know, it's horrific, and my heart goes out to those people, and I I want the government to do all they can to to support those folks. At the same time, you know, we basically just established universal basic income this month, and it's probably, you know, in the history of the United States, the biggest one-month jump from capitalism to socialism that has ever occurred. Query, you know, to what extent we end up a very different country uh, coming out of this than we were going in. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think things are going to change. There's, there's no doubt about that, and I, I think there's a big delta between, you know, jump to socialism and one of the primary purposes of the federal government to, to be providing a social safety net. Um, and, and I think that's clearly what we're, you know, what we're talking about now into the un- unemployment levels. That it, you know, more than ever, is there a line of sight? to, you know, at least a decent percentage of that being temporary, you know, hopefully, God, God willing. Um, and that once businesses are allowed to reopen, that you know, plenty of them are going to be viable going concerns and are going to need employees and people will be, you know, back at work again. So, you know, again, kind of a structural uniqueness of this versus, you know, the only other time in the U.S. economy that you've had, you know, this type of level of unemployment in the Great Depression is, and certainly that was not a temporary situation or perceived temporary situation in the same way. So, you know, I, I certainly are ardent proponent of capitalism, but would, um, you know, very much prefer my government to be squarely focused on providing a social safety net. Yeah, let's let's jump back to the FFA for a second. I, it seems like my idea for having Darius Rucker perform a charity concert next year in Miami is probably off the table, huh? I do think that is off the table. Um, you know, I mean, I, honestly, it's a big, a big question for us and, you know, plenty of other people of, of when are conferences and conventions and gatherings like that going to happen again? And do they look and feel and, and smell the same as they did previously? And, you know, I, I do think one, you know, the fundamental angle that we had with that discussion and, and you know, like you being a leader around that is the FFA can and should be doing more, you know, as a charitable uh, or supporting charitable organizations. And, um, you know, candidly, I think we're going to have to pivot a little bit from the uh, the charity concert at our global symposium, but there's probably plenty of good opportunities that we can, you know, now more than ever be focusing on our community and, and ways that we can help out and, you know, different ways of being able to give back and, again, be, be part of that social uh, safety net. So, you know, I do think that's quickly going to be a, a top topic for the, you know, the board, not just what do we do with our upcoming conferences, but, you know, how do we push forward, um, you know, some of the, the charitable and give back ideas that, you know, that we started discussing more publicly. And, you know, again, I think that's going to be a big pivot from what we envisioned originally and how that would look. Uh, but probably just you know now as important as ever. But, but but what do you think? Like what do you what do you think? We've got the the London and Asia events now you know set up for late fall this year, which when we made the change on the the London date you know felt 
pretty safe that we would be able to uh, execute that event, you know, as normally, um, you know, and originally planned. You know, I think every week that goes by, there's maybe a little bit more skepticism to October kind of fully looking normal now. What's, what's your view on that? Look, I have put a plug in FFA University for now, which was scheduled for September. I just don't think it's realistic uh, that we'd be able to pull it off in a way we'd be proud of. So to be determined, but certainly not happening in September. When you, when you when you move on to the London conference and the Singapore conference, it's not just a decision of can you hold a conference in October, right? You've got eight ton of lead up and the lead up starts a long time before you get to the actual event. And I think, you know, realistically, we're probably going to need to make a call in the next six, eight weeks, whether those, those events can go forward. Look, I'm pretty optimistic that our sponsors will support us. And I'm pretty optimistic that if the travel bans are lifted, that people will attend. Um, our market has always supported those events really, really well. Uh, at the same time, I just don't know that I'm confident that the environment's going to allow it. So, you know, maybe we've got, we've got a couple months here before we need to make further decisions. But I think, but I think those time frames are sneaking up on us pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you another question, kind of similar regard. How how is, you know, this stay at home, uh, work from home environment been impacting your business? And you know, what what do you think is is are the biggest differences, um, you know, with the team? And and has your perspective changed at all of of need to to be in the office? I'm I'm just continually surprised by the number of clients that I talk to that you know proactively bring up how well the work from home has been going and how they don't think they'll ever go back to the same or at least have some level of introduction of, um, you know, working from home as a more, you know, flexible option for employees or, you know, some rotational uh, structure or, you know, less of a need for office space. What's the the law firm's perspective on that? Well, I, I would say I got it wrong. You know, I thought when we flipped to work from home, uh, the number of lawyer hours accrued each day would drop off pretty materially. I, I got that wrong. Uh, our folks definitely worked extremely hard throughout March. Similar to you, March was the biggest month from an accrual basis in the history of our practice. And so, you know, not only did people have to make that transition, but they had to make that transition with an increase in volume. And so those two together created some technical glitches there in the beginning. You know, how do you enter time from home? How do you uh, run a conflicts check from home? But now we've kind of gotten through all of those. And uh, I feel like we're operating at near or 100% efficiency. Um, there were a couple people that, you know, we had to get a, a bigger printer for at home that they, you know, they had a little printer, but we've got long documents. We, we had to get some new printers, things like that. Uh, but I feel really, really good about our efficiencies. There have been some leadership challenges. So I can't just walk over and check somebody out and see how, how I feel like they're doing. You know, it's a little harder to keep up, up with everybody. And so we do do the WebEx meetings where, you know, I can look at little blocks of people's faces. But it is harder for me to kind of have that same finger on the pulse of how the people are doing. And I worry, you know, like, I mean, you and I live in Charlotte, we've got backyards, you know, we've got porches that we can go sit on. You know, a lot of the young people that work for us are in tiny little apartments in New York, where even getting in an elevator to go outside carries some higher level of risk than you and I are having to deal with. And so I do worry about those folks, um, especially now that we, you know, are into week five of this. You know, I worry about them from a mental health perspective. Um, so we try to check in on folks. We try to make sure resources are available. You know, we, we do what we can. But, you know, for the most part, I, I got to tell you, I feel like my team's been super resilient and, you know, they've been doing a good job of being there for clients. If, uh, if you don't feel that way, please don't announce that on this podcast, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, similarly, I, I think the inaccurately predicted, you know, a larger drop off in efficiency than what has been realized. So, um, you know, it certainly, you know, changed my perspective on what can get done. And, 
you know, personally feel that way too. And I mean, I spend a ton of time on the phone and on the computer and I can, I can do that, you know, just as well in my office at home. But what I completely miss out of um, is the ability to, you know, sit and interact. And any day that I'm not on the road traveling and at the home office in Charlotte, I would generally have one or two scheduled, you know, coffee type catch-ups with folks on the team and, and certainly plenty of, you know, unprompted, unscheduled conversations, you know, especially when you work on a trading floor environment like we do that has, you know, four or 500 people on it, you're just consistently bumping into people and, you know, you do lose a lot of that and there's, you know, a value from a, um, you know, both a, an individual and, and mentoring standpoint and understanding what's going on and then just, you know, anecdotal pieces of information that, you know, we get to pick up um, related to other markets or different things that are going on. So, you know, there, there's there's definitely a downtick in some of that activity, but, you know, arguably, if you take away the time that people are turning around and chatting about, you know, a football game or, you know, something else and, you know, you really just <laughs> dialed into the, you know, your your desk and, and focus on the work that you have, you get a little bit of offset of an uptick. And, you know, at least certainly for me, who, you know, travels around a, a decent bit and then even has a you know, longer commute for Charlotte time to get into the office, not having to, to deal with that you know, creates a, a few more hours of, of work each day. So, you know, productivity has been surprisingly well. So I do think that is is going to permanently change the, the landscape of how corporate America thinks and acts. You know, in 2008, you and I were really young and we were managing these tiny little teams, you know, in my case, then a team of two. It's a lot different this time. Uh, and it's my first experience managing through a, a really challenging economic environment. What about you? You know, leadership responsibilities you've found challenging and, and what tactics are you using to try to make people feel connected? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit on it a bit of just not being able to have that personal interaction. Um, you know, candidly, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the Zoom or the FaceTime and being able to see a, a little you know video picture of, of someone on my, my phone or iPad of um, making much of a difference versus just a phone call. Um, so I do think there's a, you know, a ton of connectivity loss that happens on the, you know, personal discussion standpoint. Now, I, I talk to people on the phone when I'm in the office, you know, from eight in the morning till 6 p.m., you know, almost nonstop on back-to-back scheduled calls. So I never, I don't, I don't, it's not accurate to say that I feel disconnected because there's a ton of interaction and a ton of discussion, but um, I, I do think having the, you know, not being able to, you know, go get a beer with someone, um, you know, have dinners and drinks and a lot of the, you know, slightly more personal time where relationship building and connectivity and, you know, honestly, a lot of the, the trust and faith that, um, you know, you you get from people, you know, in the work environment is just, you know, clearly not happening. So that, that that's the thing that I find the, you know, the most challenging around all of this, you know, I, I and I just don't know of a good way in the environment that we're in, or at least haven't found a good way to to do that. And, or, you know, our team does, has implemented some of the, the Zoom happy hours and, and things along those lines. Um, and, and certainly some people seem to, you know, to be enjoying them. And, you know, I completely agree. It's, it's a whole lot harder for folks, um, you know, living in a city or younger or single and, you know, not having some, you know, built-in release valve within their personal life. Um, you know, I, I can't, can't thank God enough, uh, you know, how happy I am with, uh, you know, living in Charlotte and having a family and, you know, being able to, you know, live in the environment that I do now has made this process a whole lot easier. And, and I mean, hell, just the, the age of my kids has made a ton of difference in that, you know, they're all largely self-sufficient, um, you know, makes makes home life and the work from home life and shelter in place significantly easier. Yeah, for sure. My my wife and my puppy Chase are in a big fight uh, and I'm trying to mediate that. That's probably my, my biggest challenge one um, one of my my I did have a pretty tough leadership challenge. Um, I've had a couple since this was started, but one of them was when one of our team members tested positive for the virus and trying to balance uh, 
helping him and protecting his privacy while caring a lot about coworkers and trying to keep them informed and protect their health. And it, it, you know, trying to cut the right balance there, I found pretty challenging. Ultimately, you know, this young person is, is terrific and he disclosed to the team and it took a lot of pressure off me, frankly, but he disclosed and offered to answer any questions and things like that. But, but for a while, that was a, uh, a challenging part of this for me. Yeah, I mean, it's again that not not one of the the things that you get taught in business school, um, you know, or in management training within our companies. Um, so certainly new experiences. Um, you know, we we've been fortunate in that while we've had a few team members, you know, on on, on my team at least that have you know had and you know had to deal with the virus that you know nothing has got to a serious level to where. You know, no one, um, you know, luckily enough has has been hospitalized or certainly anything worse than that. And, you know, I mean, gosh, like the the level of trauma to to deal with on on the team in a situation like that is just not something that you ever think about or, you know, anticipate having to to deal with as a manager. What what about some of the other asset classes that sit near you on the desk? You know, the CLO market, the CMBS market, the high yield market. How, How are those businesses holding up? Yeah, so a whole lot better today than a couple of weeks ago um, is probably the the short answer. I mean, it, it really was something to where, you know, in mid March it was very bleak when the capital markets, you know, largely seized, um, you know, and very reminiscent of 2008. Um, so, you know, I think that was probably when you were getting the most panicked calls from me um, around how, you know, how bad this was and, you know, potentially how bad it could get, you know, luckily, you know, and I do think is you know, really di- directly related to, to some of the Fed programs and activity that, you know, the very markets have been, been coming back. You know, it, it's still it, it's still a little sporadic. You can see in the structured product space, some of the asset classes that, aren't being supported within a Fed program of a, you know, a vast difference in price action and and liquidity versus the, you know, the ones that do have a, you know, do have some support mechanism involved. Um, But, you know, very recently, you know, this week, there's multiple high year, high yield deals getting done. And, you know, the leverage loan market is, is starting to, you know, have, um, you know, a bunch of, of talk again and, you know, a little bit of action starting to, to come to play. So, you know, the investor community, um, you know, within riskier asset classes and the capital market space has started to, to come back and, and step in. And, um, you know, certainly that has been really the biggest positive in in my mind in the the past two weeks and you know not necessarily something that gets a a ton of press or discussion but you know having a functioning capital markets and you know whether or not it be the short-term you know cp markets for the high grade type names or you know the high yield market for some more stressed you know companies that you know the available you know liquidity there and is going to make or break, you know, a, a, a lot of companies and whether or not they can survive or not. So, you know, I, I, as we sit today within the debt markets, things have significantly improved versus, you know, three to four weeks ago when it was looking pretty dire. So I feel a whole lot more positive uh, on that. You know, I think that everyone is still trying to figure out in the lending markets, you know, what this means. And, you know, there's plenty of forbearance programs and, and discussion around how that ripples through different uh, different asset classes and with different borrowers. So, um, you know, a lot of work being done around that. And I, I don't know if there's kind of a perfect uh, answer line of sight into what that all is going to look like at this point. But the the good news is, you know, virtually every, you know, every asset class, the market is starting to to thaw, if not, you know, fully reopened. Yeah. Well, when I look at the run-up in the equities market, I'm starting to think when investors talk about the denominator effect, they're going to have to talk about it in reverse and start making more commitments to private equity to maintain their (laughs) allocations. Equity markets feel so, so hot to me. You know, I know you share my man crush on Elon Musk, but my God, Tesla's stock is just insane. I mean, what, <laughs> what are your views on the uh, on the public markets? Yeah, it's it's 
you know, I mean, this is certainly not my area of expertise, um, you know, within the organization, but, you know, as an observer, um, you know, it, it, it was a whole lot easier in my mind to justify some of the downward movement that was going on and, and levels that we saw than it has been, you know, the, the recent rally. And, and the only thing that I can, I, I would say, um, specifically attribute or could justify, you know, what would cause some of that rally would, you know, be the comments I just made around the, you know, debt capital being available. Um, so I think that does, you know, make a difference on whether, you know, or not a company's current capital structure, you know, is going to exist and whether or not, you know, the equity levels are, are still going to, you know, to make any sense. Um, but, you know, the best I can tell is there's a, you know, there's still a lot of money out there and a lot of capital that has to be forced into the equity space. And, you know, it's, there are plenty of companies where you can see, you know, see struggling due to, due to COVID for, you know, not just the near term, but for, you know, a much longer period of time where there's a rotation that's going to happen. And, and some of that capital is going to, to flow into businesses that are, you know, easier to see, um, you know, continuing to, to be a survivor, if not a, you know, a beneficiary into what's been going on in the market. Now, I, I think it just gets into the kind of quirkiness of do those valuations make any sense? And I think, you know, one thing that, that I've learned in, in my, you know, 20 plus year, year career in finance is um, valuations can not make sense for a really long period of time before they end up rationalizing. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that ends up being the appropriate way to, you know, to think about stock levels today. Jeff, what other interesting stuff should we talk about before I let you go? So I'm curious, what does what the, the Mike Masha home office look like? What, what is your current situation? <laughs> so I've got kids' paintings up all over the walls. Uh, I'm in a uh, room that was formerly my kids' playroom that I converted into uh, my law firm war room. But I've got a foosball table. I've got a, uh, a fake kitchen that I can bake at if I get hungry. It's, uh, it's my kids' playroom. <laughs> have you have you put a, any beers on tap at this point, or is there you know what is the what what is the afternoon drinking situation in the in the Masha house? I, I do hear uh, from plenty of people out there there might be a, a slight uptick in alcohol consumption these days. Uh, we don't drink alcohol in my family. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Obviously, yeah, we we've been known to have a uh, an IPA on the back porch here for sure. Um, I miss I miss getting together with friends uh, like you and uh, you know having a cold one, but hopefully here soon. Yeah, well, I, I think that's the uh, you know one of the many things that uh, that is on my wish list now is when we can get uh, you know get a little bit back to to normalcy and can get some of uh, you know our FFA events up and running and get back and a bunch of you know, friends in, in the industry and get back and, and hang out with family again so um you know other than wanting everyone to to stay safe and to you know obviously make the make the right decisions um you know around uh <laughs> how how close or not that they get to uh, to other people right now it would uh it would certainly be nice to be able to get some family gatherings and and friends back together again for a nice cold one. So I, uh, yeah, I'm with you on the optimism around that one. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. So look, Jeff, I'm going to let you go. Really, really appreciate you making time uh, to chat with us. Uh, stay safe. If we can do anything to be helpful, give us a call. Listeners, thanks for dialing in. The material and information contained in the podcast is for general informational purposes only. Any use of the audio within this podcast without the express consent of Cadwallader is prohibited. Quotes from this podcast may not be used without the express permission of the speaker.